want to pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our righteousness. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, team. That's a good uh, prayer, and I don't know if you noticed, uh, sometimes when we come into church and sing songs, especially if you're familiar with the songs, it's easy to sing them and um, not pay quite as much attention to what you're saying from time to time, just to kind of enjoy the song. Uh, the two songs we just sang back to back are kind of quite a, quite a pair. They, they pack quite a punch. Um, the righteousness of God has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. It's, it's there. God's forgiveness is there because Jesus has risen from the dead. That's one song. And then immediately into God, give us clean hands. Let us be a holy and righteous people. Let us seek after you. Sort of cast in Old Testament language. That song we just sang is drawn right out of the Psalms. Let us seek after you more than after anything else that we want. So how do you, how do, you do that? How do you do that? How do you become the kind of person who has... In, in, in biblical language, clean hands before God, where you, you seek after him more than anything else. There's, there's no sin. There's a pure heart. There's a full enjoyment of the presence of God. That's what we're going to talk about this morning from the Bible, uh, both Old and New Testaments, because the Bible, both Old and New Testament, has a cohesive, consistent message, and it all points to the answer to that question. We're in a series of uh, messages this summer uh, on the names of God. Uh, each one of them is designed to, um, we take kind of a different name or title of God in the Bible, uh, ways that God is referred to, because each one says something about him. And so the point of, of doing this study is to help us get to see God better, relate to God more accurately for who he really is. It's a way to connect personally and corporately together as a church with our God. And so each Sunday, we're taking one name and looking to answer four simple questions. Uh, what's the name mean? What does it say about the character of God is the second uh, point. Thirdly, how does that impact the way we relate to him even now and today? Are we relating to him rightly? And lastly, what does all of this say about the gospel of Jesus, which is the point of the whole Bible? This morning, the name that we're looking at is uh, another interesting word to pronounce in English. Uh, we had one of these last week, too, because it was originally a Hebrew word. It's the word sidkenu. Uh, it looks a little more complicated than it really is to pronounce. And what I like about it is it doesn't have that deep guttural sound that the name we looked at last week had. And when Jordan was teaching, he made quite a point of pronouncing the word echad correctly. <laughs> And he sprayed the whole front row repeatedly. I think he rather enjoyed himself. I just took the mic when he was done. I said, dude, souvenir, just keep it. We're going to go buy a new one. No, I'm kidding. We didn't actually do that. Uh, this name is not quite so foreign in its sound. It's still a little different. What does it mean? And it simply means our righteousness. The Lord, Yahweh, the proper name of God, the Lord is our righteousness. This is one of the titles of God you find in the Bible. Most directly, it appears in a couple places in the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. And Drake just read those verses for us. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn them to Jeremiah chapter 23. This is where we're going to start this morning. This is where this name appears as a formal title, actually for, for the Messiah, for the, the Savior that God promised to send. Now, of course, Jeremiah, if, if you're not uh, super familiar with the Old Testament, Jeremiah is writing at a time period several hundred years, 500 years or more before the time of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, A little bit of context while you're flipping pages to Jeremiah chapter 23. Um, God, of course, this was a really bad time when Jeremiah was running around and receiving prophecies from God and speaking them and writing them down. It was a bad time to be an Israelite at this point in history. Uh, God had, in the past, given the Israelites essentially everything. Uh, they were historical nobodies in, in, one, in one sense. At one point, he, he gathered them together. He multiplied them. He made them an entire people group. Uh, he then actually made them a self-governing nation in the very famous Exodus account, the parting of the Red Sea and the freedom from Egypt. And he sets up for them uh, a, a God-oriented uh, kingdom and throne. And he also gave them a homeland, or what we call the promised land. He said, this is where you're now going to live, and it's a good place. And so he made them a people, he gave them a, a self-governing nation, and he gave them a homeland. He'd given them everything. But, despite this, they had repeatedly sinned against God, or in the language of kind of what we've already seen this morning, they repeatedly showed that they did not have clean hands. Uh, They did not seek after God's face, to use all that Old Testament language. They weren't yearning for God more than anything else. Frankly, they yearned for a lot of other things other than God. The Bible calls that idolatry, the worship of idols. When you yearn for something or someone else more than God, and so it pulls your heart away from Him. That was their story. And as a result, consequently, they, they lost over time all of the blessings of God that they initially had. Uh, They were divided into two. They're no longer one cohesive people. They were conquered, so they're no longer a self-governing nation. They're back in slavery under the thumb of foreign dictators again, just like they had been generations earlier in Egypt. And by the time Jeremiah rolls around, they were exiled, which is kind of a nice sanitized way to say that they were hauled off as slaves and they were literally taken out of the promised land. Those who had survived the fighting and the conquering, those who were left, were pulled out of the promised land and relocated in a foreign country where they were second-class citizens with different language, different ethnicity, different skin color, and they were forced to be slaves. Their existence was not a happy one. Everything God had given them is gone. One people, now they're two peoples. Self-governing nation, now they're slaves. Home in the promised land, now they're out of the promised land. There's not much hope for them. And Jeremiah is running around receiving messages from God saying, first of all, here's why you're in the pickle you're in. (laughs) And it's because you are faithless. You were faithless to God. But he also promises God will fix it one day. And that leads us to Jeremiah chapter 23. This is one of the places in this uh, lengthy prophetic book where God, through the prophet Jeremiah, promises to fix the mess his people have made. Our main uh, verses are verses 5 and 6. Verses 1 to 4 leading up to that, I won't read the whole thing. God actually takes um, the people he calls the shepherds to task. Uh, in verses 1 to 4 of Jeremiah 23. That was basically the priests, uh, the religious leaders. He says, the reason my people are in such a mess at one level is because you guys, the leaders who are supposed to be examples to them and to teach them to follow me, you failed. And so God is just hammering the pastors, essentially. And that's way too convicting for me, so we're going to skip those verses and go straight down to verse (laughs) 5. Actually, there's a lot of good stuff there, but we're going to land here in verse 5, okay? God says, my people have failed me. Their leaders, their spiritual leaders have especially failed both them and me. And so, that's the context for the promise he makes. He says, so I myself will send a new shepherd, a new leader 
a new pastor who's going to be better than all of them. He's going to fix it. Here's what he says in verses 5 and 6. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, Yahweh Zidkenu. The Lord Yahweh is our righteousness. That's what you'll call this king, this savior, when he comes. Now, in verse 5, when he says, I will raise up for David a righteous branch, there's obviously context and and history to what's going on there. This is a reference uh, back to the uh, prophet Isaiah in chapter 11, where God says, you guys are now conquered. Whoops, getting ahead of myself here. You are uh, conquered. Your your kingdom is a mess. And so he had promised uh, King David a couple generations earlier that your uh, line of kings will continue unbroken. And well, now they're like, well, it's been broken. And so Isaiah pictures the line of Davidic kings as a tree that's been cut down. He says, that's what it's like. That's the word picture in Isaiah chapter 11. The, The tree has been cut down. There's just a stump there in the ground where the tree used to be. But God promises through Isaiah, one day a shoot is going to spring up out of that tree. Uh, The stump looks dead, but it's not quite dead yet. You know those little sucker shoots that annoy you when you cut them all off? (laughs) He says there's going to be a little shoot that's going to come up out of that stump, and it's going to start growing again. And that shoot or that branch, that new branch, is a person. It's yet another king. Jeremiah picks up on that same language here in verse 5. He says the righteous branch will come, and the branch isn't a thing, it's a person. Uh, He shall reign as king and deal wisely. He's going to save you. And the name of this future king who will bring about such perfection for God's people, you will call him Yahweh is our righteousness. Now that's, that is an odd uh, and unusual name to say the least for at least a couple of reasons. First, um, it's unusual because of who it refers to. You notice he says, God, Yahweh, God's proper name, he says, I'm going to send this other person, this king, and when he gets there, you will call him Yahweh is our righteousness. Now, a name usually says something about the person that it's attached to. But in this case, the future Messiah, the Savior, has a name that looks like it's not directly pointed at him at all. It's pointed at God who sent him. So it's unusual in that respect. And we wonder what's going on there. But secondly, it's unusual for maybe even a more obvious reason. Yahweh is our righteousness. He's our righteousness. Well, in the context of what he promised to do, I would understand it if he said, uh, the Lord is our, our Savior, because that's what he's going to do. He's going to save us. The Lord is our king, because that's what he said he's going to be. He's going to be king. And so if he said, that's what you're going to call him, I can't. I mean, those names would make sense based on what God just said this future king is going to do. He's our savior. He's our king. He's our ruler. He's our hope. I I could think of a lot of names that would fit the context in a super obvious way. He is our righteousness, is not one that strikes me as being immediately obvious why that's the name here. So what is going on? In answering these questions, we find one of the most powerful and liberating truths in all of the Bible and has transformed lives for thousands of years. 
it can continue to transform your life today. Let's start with what uh, the second one first. What does this righteousness mean? We'll talk about whose name it is here in just a moment. What does righteousness mean? The Lord is our righteousness. We get a good indication of that all the way back at the very beginning of the Bible. It's worth thinking for a second about what's being said here because righteousness is a word you typically don't hear in modern America unless you come to church, right? Unless you're reading your Bible and then you run into a word like righteousness quite a bit. But people don't use the word righteous kind of out there in in regular English. It was kind of a slang term for a while. That's cool. That's righteous. Yeah, some of you remember that. You guys are righteous. That is awesome. Dave, right on. I love it. Some of you are going like, seriously, people used to talk that way? Yeah, that's what they're going to say about you too in 10 years. So don't worry about it, okay? Righteous, that's not a word we use. What is being, what's being, what's meant there by that? Let's go all the way back for a moment to Genesis chapter 6, the well-known story of Noah, where we get an indication from the earliest chapters of the Bible what this word righteousness and righteous means and how it works. Now, almost everybody's heard the story of Noah and the ark. Uh, God goes to Noah, tells him to build a big boat. There's a flood coming. Noah chooses to believe God. He does it. The flood comes. It annihilates everybody except Noah and his family and the animals who are with him on the boat. It's a picture of him being saved because he trusted God's word. Now, before that story starts, as by way of background, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 says, these are the generations of Noah. Now, Noah was a righteous man. There's our word. It occurs all over the Bible. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That's how we're introduced to who this guy is, and then the story goes on from there. Now, in that simple introduction, we are told a couple of things uh, about what righteous means. He's called righteous, but that's further defined as a person who is blameless and one who walks with God. Blameless means you basically never do the wrong thing. Nobody can accuse him of doing the wrong thing. And to walk with God means you live your life in a way that's consistent with what God's values are, in a way that will please God. And you can see how the two go together. To be righteous, to use more biblical language, is to be blameless, to never do the wrong thing, and to live your life in a way that's consistent with God. This is kind of my working definition of righteousness that's up on the screen here. This is not like a scholarly, thorough definition, but I think this is really what it boils down to. When the Bible talks about righteousness, it means doing the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. And all three of those are important. The righteous person is the one who does the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. And the reason that all three of those uh, statements are important becomes pretty obvious when you just start thinking about it. Uh, here's, a, here's an illustration to maybe make this clear. Uh, the late Chuck Colson was fond of using an illustration. I heard him use it several times. Uh, when he would get into discussions with people who would argue that, hey, right and wrong is a matter of opinion, right? We're all relativists. There is no absolute right and wrong. And so in response to that, he would often pose this hypothetical. He says, say you're walking down a very busy street, you know, New York City or something, multiple lanes of traffic, cars, crazy taxi cab drivers going everywhere, buses. It's dangerous. And you see um, an elderly lady. She clearly wants to cross the street, but maybe she's a little overwhelmed by the traffic. She's not really sure when to go. And she's, she's concerned about getting across the street. And he says, in that moment, you've basically got three choices. 
you can, one, help her get across the street. Two, just walk past her and carry on with your day and leave her to her own devices. Or three, push her into the traffic. (laughs) And the minute you say that, everybody goes, oh, I can't believe you just said that. And he says, and you don't think that there's a right answer? You know, ha ha, gotcha. That was his way of kind of saying, we all know what the right and the wrong thing is as much as we want to convince ourselves that there isn't a right thing. To be righteous is to do the right thing. And one of the things I liked about his illustration is not just that there's one obvious wrong choice, but you know that middle choice, just continuing to walk by and, and, and leave her, probably isn't really like sin. I mean, it's hard to say that that's just a moral evil, but it's clearly not the best choice, is it? Of the three choices, there's one clearly right choice. Often we're tempted not only to do the wrong thing, but sometimes we're just tempted to do a little bit less than the right thing, which isn't exactly the same thing. But at least I didn't, you know, push her into the traffic, right? (laughs) And we justify ourselves. Righteousness is not a matter of saying, how close to the line can I get before I cross over and still be okay with God? Like, I want to do as, as much bad stuff as I can until it officially becomes bad. As long as I'm on this side of that line, I'm okay. But I want to skirt as close to that line as possible where I'm technically not sinning. That's not the heart of a righteous person. Righteousness says, I want to get as close to the right thing as possible. I yearn to be close to God. What issues of right are you facing right now? The need to forgive someone who's mistreated you, even if they're legitimately in the wrong and you've been sinned against. A decision about how to spend your time or your money. The righteousness question asks, are we, really, are, are we merely reaching for what might be minimally allowable in God's eyes or are we yearning for what's truly right? To make the righteous choices to do the right thing. But it's also to do it in the right way, to do the right thing in the right way. Let me me press uh, Colson's analogy a little bit further. Say you were watching this whole scene unfold. The lady's trying to cross the street. You see a young man walk by. He notices her, and he stops, and he starts to help her get across the street safely. And you're initially thinking, oh, good, good for him. Good call. I'm glad he did that. Until you notice that his body language is irritated and frustrated. Halfway across the street, he's verbally complaining about how slow she's going. He's looking at his watch. He's making her feel awful because she's slowing him down. And now what do you think of him? Is he the hero? You're like, what a jerk. (laughs) If that's your attitude, you probably should have just kept walking and let somebody who actually cares, you know, help her. It's one thing to do the right thing, but to do it in the right way, with the right attitude, the right heart. Righteousness is a matter of not just behavior, did I technically do the right thing, but where is my heart in it? Am I doing the right thing with a gracious spirit? One thinks of two kindergartners on the playground fighting over a ball. You know, the teacher comes over and sorts out the, you know, who's going to get to play with the ball thing. But after the big fight, it's like, okay, kids, shake hands and make up, say you're sorry, which they don't want to do, <laughs> especially the one who didn't get his way, Right? Well, if you don't say you're sorry, you're going to spend the rest of the recess sitting over there on the bench watching everybody else play. Well, he doesn't want to do that either, so fine. Sorry. Did he do the right thing? Mm. Did he do it in the right way? Mm. 
to do the right thing in the right way. It's too easy to technically make right choices in our life, but deep down inside our hearts are totally in opposition to it. God says that's not righteousness. It's not just a matter of behavior, it's a matter of the heart. But lastly, to do not only the right thing in the right way, but to do it for the right reasons. Let's just push our analogy one step further. Say this time the young man you see does come to the lady, helps her across the street. He's actually pretty nice about it the whole time. Oh, ma'am, can I please help you? Absolutely. He gives her his arm. He's pushing the walk button for her. He's getting her across. He's, he's just encouraging her along the way. Oh, thank you, young man. Oh, my pleasure, ma'am. And, and he's just he's sweeter than anything to her. And you're like, oh, what a great guy. Good for him. And then he comes back across the street, and you see him walk over to his friend. He goes, see, I told you, pay up. And his friend hands him a $20 bill. And you're like, wait a minute. (laughs) Are you telling me you really didn't want to help that lady at all? Your friend just dared you, just bet you that you wouldn't, and so you did, and so you weren't interested in helping her. You just wanted the money. Now what do you think of him? Does Does it change your opinion in any way? You do the right thing in the right way, but for the wrong reasons, it's still not really righteousness. Selfish motives often produce some remarkably moral behavior, (laughs) but God is not impressed. If I'm still ultimately living for myself, that's not righteousness. So that's what righteousness is. It's doing the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. Noah was righteous and blameless because he walked with God. Now, this leads to something important about God righteousness is defined by him not us it's defined by him not us even as we think about what righteousness means we've already kind of backed into our second question the first question is what does the name of god mean and and what does it say about god the second question is uh rather what does that say about god and what does that say about his character when we look at that definition of righteousness doing the right thing the right way for the right reasons noah is righteous because he walked with god what does that say about god What that says about God is that he's the one who defines what is right, what righteousness is. It's doing the right thing according to God, in the right way, according to God, for the right reasons, according to God. Righteousness is defined by God, not by us. And it's defined actually by God's very nature, which does not change, not even his own capricious choice. God doesn't just arbitrarily pick right and wrong. To be right or wrong is the extent to which we line up with God's very nature and character. Who he is defines right and wrong, and that never changes. Righteousness is defined by God. And it's worth pondering that just a little bit before we charge on to the third question in terms of how do we relate to God. Because the idea that that right is not only defined absolutely, I mean, that's enough of an issue for most modern Americans, but that it's defined absolutely by somebody else other than me doesn't usually go down very easy today, does it? At least not in Western societies like ours, Europe, the U.S., North America, places like that. Our general default is to think more along the lines of, who is anyone to tell me what's right in my own life? One of our biggest cultural values is that you essentially don't let anyone tell you that, be it parents, um, friends, uh, teachers, a boss, a government, 
church? Do your pastors and, and, and priests and elders get to define what's right and wrong? And, and not, even, not even a religious tradition or a religious book like the Bible. You let these external sources of, of right and wrong and, and opinions about right and wrong define what's right and wrong for you. That's terrible. Don't let anybody tell you what's right for you. Only you can ultimately be the judge of that. You define what's right for you. And in practice, that largely is done based on how you feel about things. Uh, what's important to me? What feels right to me? What makes sense to me in this situation? Whatever that is, that's right. You ought to pursue it. At least that's right for you. And don't let anybody else, don't get obsessed about anybody else if they make a different choice. You've got to do what's right for you. I think all Americans, whether you're a Christian or not, can relate to that, especially if you grew up in this country, which most of us did. Did God really say all those things about divorce? You're like, really? That, gosh, that just can't be right. Did he really say that about human sexuality? Did he really say that about, you know, whatever the topic is? I, it seems so, so narrow. It feels harsh. Seems a little judgmental, uncaring, unfeeling to whatever. That, that can't be, it can't just be that. It can't be that. It makes it seem wrong. And we wrestle with it. Of course we do. Interestingly, at that point, it sounds a lot like what the serpent said to Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? Come on. Look at the apple. Look at the fruit. I don't think it was an apple. Decide for yourself. Make your own choice. It's worth mentioning here that the standards of, of what's right and wrong that are taught in the Bible contradict every culture somewhere. Now, the Bible will contradict different cultures at different places because human cultures are very different from one another. Uh, we just happen to be talking about where it often contradicts modern American culture. But it will contradict every culture somewhere. Um, I'll never forget uh, Timothy Keller talking to, uh, about a, a conversation he had uh, in Europe with a, a Middle Eastern graduate student. She was a, a young professional lady from a Middle Eastern country uh, studying in Europe. And uh, he was uh, having one of these university talks where he was talking about the gospel and the Bible and a bunch of students who weren't Christians were there asking questions about the Bible. And afterwards, he got in a conversation with one lady. Um, at some point during that uh, conversation, the whole topic of, of hell had come up like God is a judge, God judging people eternally. And a lot of the European students were just like, oh, that's so offensive, I just can't buy that, it's horrible, and you know, on and on and on. So he was answering a lot of questions about hell, and he was so surprised when he talks to this uh, young, intelligent lady from a Middle Eastern background, and she didn't have a problem with the idea of hell at all. In fact, that was the most natural thing in the world. If God is there, of course he should judge unrepentant, evil people. I mean, that, that's a, that was a well-duh for her. I had no issues with that at all. What she couldn't stomach was the idea of a God who would forgive unworthy sinners. Cannot, I can't even fathom that is so beneath God to forgive somebody who did wrong just like as if he's making light of their wrong and just letting it go. I could never believe in a God who forgives unworthy sinners. It's so interesting, because like in, in America, we're all about second chances, aren't we? 
We love to trumpet, hey, nobody's perfect. Everybody deserves second chances. That's a, we, we, we read in the Bible about a God who forgives, and we're like, yeah, that's how God should be. Good for him. Nice people forgive. If God is there, he ought to be nice. Great, we have no problem in general. Think of a God who forgives. We can't stand a God who defines right. Not everybody feels that same way. It's worth thinking about. Point is, we all have our specific hang-ups. And one of them in general for us in this part of the world is the idea that God defines what's right rather than us. But that's an issue for us because of our own cultural background, which, which really leads us to our third question. If righteousness is doing the right thing the right way for the right reasons, according to God, and God is the one who defines it, then how do we relate to him? What does that imply about our relationship with God? It says we must let him define what's right. And if we do, this is the key in the Bible, if God defines what's right, that is what will lead to life. That is what will lead to life. Life and joy are found when we walk in the path that God has defined as right. Eve got into a heap of trouble when she decided for herself. When we live out of step with what God says is right, we die. That's the consistent message of the Bible. That was the experience of the people in Noah's day. Uh, Noah was somewhat unique in his generation. He was the kind of guy that tended to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons in God's eyes. But he was largely alone in that. Most people didn't. And the rest of humanity was executed by God for their repeated, unrepentant, stubborn determination to live their own way. He was saved because of his righteousness, the Bible says. And that was the experience of the Israelites in Jeremiah's day, centuries later. Their constant failure to do what was right led them to be conquered, slaved, exiled from the promised land over and over and over again. You see the same message in the Bible. When you live and walk the path of righteousness, you're blessed by God. When you don't, you suffer. In the framework of the Bible, righteous living is the path to life, to joy, to success. If we want the blessing of God's favor, we must be righteous. We must do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons in God's eyes. And we must do it all the time, every moment of every day. That's all it takes. Anybody feel optimistic about your chances? <laughs> I don't. Like, I know where this sermon is ending, and so I'm, I'm really fighting hard not to just rush past this point because I feel, even right now, the crushing weight of what I just said. Seriously, if I'm going to find life in God, I've got to do the right thing for the right reasons in the right way, according to God, every moment of every day for my entire life? Yes. And then you'll have life and peace. Isn't that great news? I can't do that. Neither could the Israelites. Neither could Adam and Eve. Neither can you. Neither can I. No one can, not all the time. But here in Jeremiah, God is promising that his people will be righteous when he sends his Messiah. And that brings us to the fourth, final, and in many ways most important question. If righteousness is defined by God's character, and that means that we have to relate to him by living righteously according to him in order to find life, but we can't do that. What do we do? It brings us back to Jeremiah. God says, one day I will send this king. And when he comes, he's going to make everything wonderful for my people. And you will call him 
Yahweh is our righteousness. This is where the story gets really interesting because it is the great gospel twist in the narrative of the Bible. The name of the Messiah is not, He will make my people be righteous, finally. The Lord is our righteousness. And He will make us righteous. He is our righteousness. What is going on here? The New Testament book of Romans begins to unpack this beautifully. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament. How is it that this future king will be our righteousness? What does that mean? How does that work? What difference does it make in the life of a person now? Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It's kind of the, really the thesis statement, if you will, for the whole book of Romans. It's the entire point. Back up to verse 16, just to get the context. The Apostle Paul writing says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus, he means, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here's our verse. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, beginning and ending in faith. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This was an important verse of Scripture for so many reasons. It utterly revolutionized Western history. Yeah, I just meant what I just said. <laughs> Romans 1.17 completely revolutionized Western history and changed church as we know it. This was the epiphany, as it were, the light going on in the head of a German monk named Martin Luther. And that's a name, if you're a Christian, you should know. Not Martin Luther King. Uh, he was an important guy too. But we're talking about the guy for whom he was named back in the 16th century, a German monk named Martin Luther. Martin Luther effectively started the Protestant Reformation. And actually, three months from today, this coming October, is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. That's pretty significant. I don't know how many 500th anniversaries you've celebrated in your life. But we're going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this fall at Harvest and learn some things about what that means. There'll be a lot more coming uh, then. But for now, let me just say this. Uh, Martin Luther was a, um, a priest. Uh, he was a theology professor who lived in a town called Wittenberg in Germany back in the 16th century, about 500 years ago. Uh, he studied the Bible and he served God as a priest, but he actually believed what he read in the Bible. He believed that sin was sin and he knew how awful it was and he knew he did not have clean hands. He knew he could not do the right thing the right time for the right reasons in God's eyes all the time and he was crushed under the weight of his own guilt. And even though he was a priest and a theology professor, he could not see his way out of this. He was depressed. He poured out his heart to God in prayer. He felt there was no way away from his own sin. There was no way he could attain to the righteousness that God demands from his people. But his life was revolutionized one day when he read the verse we just read. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not the righteousness of man. How do I finally become such a righteous person that I will earn God's favor? That, it suddenly dawned on Luther, that's not what the Bible's talking about. It long ago established there is no such thing as enough righteousness from man to earn God's favor. It's talking about God's 
righteousness. The, the righteousness of God himself is revealed in the gospel. The righteous person lives by faith. That's trust. So the Bible says, not by effort, not by defining his or her life through their own choice, and not by keeping the commands of God's law. The righteous person lives by faith, by trusting in God who alone is righteous. Luther realized, wait a second, wait a second. Stop the presses. The one who succeeds at being righteous doesn't depend on his or her own effort to follow God's rules. What the Bible is saying is the one who succeeds in being righteous depends on or trusts in God who alone is righteous and in some way we, we lay hold of that righteousness and it sort of becomes our own. It's God's own righteousness. Uh, Luther and some of the guys that were with him coined the term at this point in history, alien righteousness. Uh, it's alien to us, meaning it's foreign. It's, it's not really ours. It actually belongs to him. And Luther said this in response to that discovery. When he realized the righteousness was God's, he said, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. The man was a priest and a theology professor, but he says, I didn't meet Jesus until I really understood the gospel. And that's what changed my life for all eternity. Romans goes on in chapter 3, verses 20 to 22, which Drace read earlier. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No one can do the right thing in the right way all the time in God's eyes without fail. It just can't happen. The Bible could not be more clear. Nobody gets righteous that way. It doesn't work. Drop the mic. Walk away. It's clear. But, verse 21, the righteousness of God, there it is again, God's righteousness is manifested, that is, it's made visible, it's made real, apart from the law. It is the righteousness of God can be had apart from doing all of God's rules and following them perfectly all the time. The righteousness of God, verse 22, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It is attained by trusting him, not just once, but every moment of every day for the rest of one's life. This is a completely different spiritual experience that the Bible is describing. It takes a lot of religious people years to really catch up to how different this is. The gospel is God's righteousness for us. By the way, even Noah, remember that really righteous guy we were talking about earlier? Wasn't completely righteous on his own. It's not like he just had some amazing like Jesus juice that none of the rest of us have. And he managed to just like never make a mistake in his life. As a matter of fact, you can stay in Romans here for a second, but let me just read out of Hebrews, uh, one verse out of Hebrews chapter 11. It tells us a little bit about uh, what was going on with Noah. By faith, the Bible says, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, the flood, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You know what the Bible's saying? 
Even that righteous guy Noah wasn't right because he just never made a mistake. He was righteous because he trusted God. He trusted God. That's what Romans chapter 1, verse 17 said. The righteous one shall live by faith. He trusted God. When God said do it, it didn't make sense to him, but he did it. God says, that's how you get righteous with me because you can't get righteous with me on your own. Noah was righteous because he trusted God. In reverent fear, it says, he constructed an ark. He trusted the Lord. And that leads us to where we're going to end this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. How does that work? How does faith, how does trusting God lead to righteousness? The Bible describes it this way. There's a divine exchange that goes on. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin. Who knew no sin? He didn't have sin, but he made him to be sin for us. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And at this point, the Bible ties it all together. There it is. Do you see that? In Jesus, we have the chance to become the righteousness of God. This is starting to sound a lot like Jeremiah. The Lord is our righteousness. That's the name of the Messiah. The Messiah makes us the righteousness of the Lord. Do you see how it all comes together? Jesus Christ, when he goes to the cross, goes to the cross for every dirty stain on your hands and my hands. Every wrong thing we've done, every wrong way we've done even the right thing, and every improper motive that may have even led us to a moral choice, but it was for an immoral reason. All of our unrighteousness, the behavioral stuff, the heart stuff, the motivation stuff, all of the sin, Jesus takes it to the cross. That's the only place you find freedom from unrighteousness. That's the way by which God can give you clean hands and a pure heart. To take your unrighteousness, my unrighteousness, to the cross. That's how God pulls this off, which suddenly starts to make sense out of what initially looked really weird in Jeremiah. The Messiah is not going to be somebody who comes and just suddenly makes everybody be righteous, like he's just going to whip us and whip us and whip us and make us do the right thing all the time. Every time we step out of line, he's going to spank you so that you get back in line. There, I never sinned because he's just forcing me to be righteous. No, that's not how it works. It's not that he makes us be righteous. He is our righteousness. And to trust in him is to realize I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I bring nothing to the table when it comes to being right with God. And so, Jesus, would you give me your righteousness? I don't deserve it. You are offering it as a free gift. Because when he takes it from us on the cross, it says that in him, then we become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes our sin, nails it to the cross, and pays the penalty of death that we should pay. But he then gives us in exchange his own righteousness. And that finally solves the last little uh, mystery or curiosity of this name. We've talked a lot about what righteousness is, but you remember at the beginning, we also said the funny thing about the name in Jeremiah is that it was a name attached to the Messiah, the future Savior, but it was Yahweh is our righteousness, God, not the Savior. Why does the Savior have a name that's not the Savior? Well, it turns out the Savior is God. Suddenly it makes sense. God in human flesh comes to this earth to be the promised Savior. Yahweh is our righteousness. Because Yahweh has come himself. God the Father has sent God the Son 
to accomplish for us the righteousness we could never accomplish. In the gospel of Jesus, every question and oddity of the Old Testament suddenly comes together in perfect clarity in the person of Jesus Christ, bleeding on the cross and victoriously risen from the dead. Friends, where you and I can find life. That's the message of the Bible. So what? (laughs) What do we do with that? I'd like to close by encouraging us to think about what limitation on your righteousness are you facing right now? If we're all honest, it probably doesn't take us all that long to realize that there's some areas in my life I'm definitely not doing the right thing, or I'm not, maybe I'm doing the right thing, but I'm not doing it the right way with the right heart. Or maybe I kind of am doing the right thing the right way, but my motives are ultimately totally off. They're for me. They're not for God. Is there somebody that you need to forgive and you're just not doing it? You know, Peter says to Jesus, hey, should I forgive my neighbor up to seven times? Wouldn't that be like amazingly gracious of me? Jesus says 70 times seven. Seriously? He says, you still haven't approached how much God has forgiven you. That's righteousness. If you're going to forgive like God, yeah, seriously. We can so often grit our teeth and do the right thing, but have completely wrong motives or demeanor while we do it. Or maybe it's a besetting sin. That's a term that sometimes we use of sins that just seem to to nag us. Uh, Everyone's got them. They're, They're different. Maybe it's one thing for you and something else for me, but we, we've all got sins that just kind of seem to recur. They seem to be weak spots for us. We're constantly tempted. We constantly go back into this thing. We find a hard time whipping it for good. Maybe it's just an attitude of jealousy towards someone else, a vindictive spirit that nobody else knows about except you and God, of course. Whatever the issue is, What are the limits of your righteousness that you're facing right now today? You can point to it and say, yep, that's where I don't do the right thing the right way for the right reasons in God's eyes all the time. Right there. I want to encourage us to recognize those sins for what they are. They're the limits of our own righteousness. And then come to Jesus and simply be real. Tell him, acknowledge it. He knows it anyway. Right? I mean, there's not a person in this room that's in danger of informing God of something he doesn't already know. We can rest easy on that score. He already knows it. So unload your heart and soul in prayer. Acknowledge the limits of your righteousness and surrender to him. I've, I don't have it. But you do, and you're offering it to me. And so ask him to take your failures to the cross and give you his perfect righteousness. Friends, what I want to emphasize so strongly is that if you're not a Christian, this is how the Christian life begins. You do that for the first time. You say, I can't be righteous enough, Jesus. I need you. Would you forgive me of my sins and be my Savior? If that's where you're at this morning, you can begin a relationship with Jesus right now. In just a moment, I'm going to give us a moment of of silent time to just reflect a bit and pray. The worship team's going to come up and then lead us in some song. I'd encourage you to do that. But just before we do that, let me also emphasize, if you're already a Christian, nothing changes. Nothing changes. That discussion you have with Jesus the first time where you confess your sins and you accept his righteousness is not a one-time event in the rearview mirror. It is an ongoing lifestyle. Every moment of every day, I show that I have limits on my righteousness. 
And I need to keep bringing it back to Jesus and letting the gospel continue to shape my life as I reach out in faith to him and embrace the righteousness that he has offered to me. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment as the worship team comes up and gets ready to lead us. And just give you a moment to pray. Just a few moments of, of silence, just to reflect and then to pray. And if, if you recognize in your own life there's a limit to your righteousness, I'd invite you to simply say to God silently in your own mind, God can hear you. God, I confess this area of my sin. Tell him what it is my immoral behavior, my lack of forgiveness, whatever it is. Would you forgive me for that? Jesus, would you take that sin to the cross and kill it? And would you be my savior by giving me your righteousness instead? Take a few moments to just reflect. If that's the, that reflects your heart, then just pray that back to him. And then we're going to sing together thanking God for the grace of the gospel and the righteousness that he provides for us.